The Book of Esther. I mean, I've heard Esther described as like a Mexican soap opera with Persian subtitles. I mean, it's got all of the elements. You've got beautiful women, you've got corrupt politicians, powerful men, you've got all of these different things, and on top of all of it, you've got danger and death on the horizon. So Esther is amazing. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Esther, and we're continuing our series called Heroes, How Our Extraordinary God Uses Ordinary People to Accomplish Incredible Things. Now, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, Esther actually is only one of two books in the entire Bible that has no mention of the name of God. But what it does do is it highlights one of the main themes that we see throughout Scripture about how it's often the most desperate, the most difficult, the most destitute of situations that actually serve to advance God's plan for and through and in God's people. Our story today takes some, some time between 486 BC and 465, and there's several main characters. Uh, the first character is King Xerxes. And, and King Xerxes was the Persian ruler, the Persian king, and he ruled from Ethiopia all the way to India, vast empire. Now today, kind of in our pop culture, he's been, uh, you know, kind of popularized as, as the king that went against Greece and Athens. He was the the king that kind of presided over the Battle of Thermopylae when he battled against the, the 300 Spartans. Uh, but he's known more historically for two other things, his building projects and then his love for the ladies. In fact, in the story of Esther, you see that he deposed and, and likely executed his first wife, Vashti, because she refused to show up to a, uh, a party uh, naked so that all the men could enjoy her beauty. And not only that, but history tells us that the later part of his kind of rule, he was less concerned with uh, the affairs of the state and his nation and more concerned with the affairs of, of his, his kind of brothel and his harem. And so that's the kind of guy that Xerxes was. You also have a couple other characters, Haman and Mordecai. In fact, it's interesting to this day, anytime the story of Esther is read during Purim, uh, anytime the name Haman is mentioned, people hiss and boo, and anytime Mordecai is mentioned, people cheer. Now, Mordecai was, uh, was a Jew, Esther's uncle, adopted father, and he's one of the, the heroes of the story. Haman was Xerxes' right-hand man. He was a political leader, and he's essentially just a horrible human being. And so you've got Haman and, and Mordecai. Now, the story tells us that Haman loved power. He craved attention and glory and fame. And when the king elevated him to second in command, everybody was supposed to bow down to Haman. And everybody does, except for Mordecai. And Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And so Haman, essentially in his wrath and in his anger, he decides that not only does Mordecai have to die, but Mordecai's people, the Jewish people, have to die. And so he goes to Xerxes and basically pitches this idea that, hey, there's this group of people in your kingdom that are like a blight to your kingdom. They're different than everybody else. They disobey the commands. And, and so here's the plan. Let me commit genocide against all of these people. And not only will we get rid of all of these troublesome people, but we'll also be able to take all of their possessions and you'll be richer for it. And so the king signs the decree, agrees to this. The date is set. Uh, the destruction of God's people is on the horizon. Now, here's the climax of the story. What's going to happen to God's people? What's going to happen? And so Mordecai finds out about this plan. He tells Esther, and Esther is his niece and now Xerxes' wife. 
And he tells her what's happening and says that it says something to her that, that everybody's heard of, and whether you know it's from the Bible or not, he says this. Esther 4.14, he says, If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen, listen to this, for just such a time as this. And so Esther's got a decision to make. Is she going to continue to hide her Jewish heritage, or is she going to rise up at this pivotal moment in history? Now, here's the thing is, up to this point of the story, Esther has shown no qualities that are worth emulating. I mean, she's been married to the king for four or five years, and, and nobody knows, including her husband, that she's one of God's people, which means that she's not been obeying the scriptures, means she's, she's not been uh, celebrating the festivals with her people like she's supposed to. She's not been following the dietary rules. She's not been worshiping. And so she's not emulating anything worth modeling after up to this point. And I would say she, like you know many people today, is kind of like a secret believer. Like She would say that she's Jewish, but there is no fruit or evidence of that in her life. Now granted, she's in a really difficult position, but you know, her crisis didn't excuse her from her calling. Just because it was difficult didn't mean that she had a past. In fact, I, I would say this if you're taking notes, is that, that your crisis is, is, is often what reveals your calling. That it's in those difficult situations that it doesn't give an, a, an excuse to be silent. It was the difficult situation that set up the way in which God wanted to use Esther in this moment. And so in the story, a death sentence has been set for God's people. A date is set for the execution for Mordecai. And Esther hears this and she's decided, hey, I need to find a way to use my position and influence that God has given me to do something for God's people. And so she decides that she's going to risk her life and go see the king. Now, culturally speaking, you weren't allowed to just go and see the king. You had to be invited. And if you walked into the king's presence uninvited and he didn't welcome you, you would be executed on the spot. And so she decides she's got to do something. She's got to go see the king. And she says this. She say, if I perish, I perish. And so she goes, she enters into the king's court and, and the king welcomes her and he asks her, hey, what can I do for you? What do you want? But Esther's not foolish. She's not impatient. She's waiting for the right opportunity. And so she decides that she's going to throw a banquet. Hey, king, will you come to a party? I'm going to throw a party. Will you come to it? And she invites Haman also, who is our enemy. And over the course of the night, the king asks, hey, what do you want me to do for you? I'll do anything. What do you want me to do for you? And she says, hey, will you come to another party? So she realizes it's not yet time yet. And so she throws another banquet. Well, at this banquet, again, here's Haman, her enemy, and, and here's the king, and the plot thickens. Like, it, like with every moment she waits, the people of God get closer to execution. Her uncle, her adopted father, is on the brink of being crucified, impaled on a 75-foot pole that Haman had built in his front yard to make a spectacle of the one man who refused to honor, honor him. And yet Esther is patient. And so we pick up the story in Esther chapter 7, verse 1. And it says, On this occasion... While they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What's your request? I'll give it to you, even if it's up to half of my kingdom. And so he keeps asking her, Esther, what do you want? What do you want? And yet she's waiting patiently for just the right time. Verse 3, 
Queen Esther replied, If I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. Now the king, you know, he probably thinks when Esther requests something, he probably thinks she wants something nice, maybe some new clothes, maybe a, a nice vacation. And she says, I don't want to be murdered. Now up to this point in the story, she's been timid, but now she's bold. She's been silent, but now she's speaking. She's been passive, but now she's acted. This is a woman who is growing in, in her audacious faith. See, faith is, faith is not something that's private. You know, you hear people say, you know, oh, I've got a personal relationship with God. I say, you know what, that's great. Cultivate, develop your walk with Jesus. Enjoy your time with him. But I would say this, is that faith is only faith when it impacts other people. And so this woman, Esther, is growing in her faith. And she says that, or verse 4 says this. She says, for my people, listen, my people, she's now associating herself for the first time with God's people. For my people, and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. But for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Note this. She says, my people, like we wouldn't disturb you with something as minor as the enslavement of an entire race of people, but this is a big deal. And so she's got the king's attention. I read the story and she's got our attention also. What could be more pronounced than the, than the what could be a more pronounced crisis than the enslavement of an entire group of people? And the king responds, verse 5, Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you. Now the king is, is irate at this point because an assault on the, king, on the queen is an assault on the king. Now, it's not that the king particularly loves his wife. I know people want to romanticize the story, the story of the queen, the, the queen and the king, but he doesn't love his wife. She's only queen because he satisfied his desires more than all of the other virgins in the land. Like they don't have a deep relationship here. He rarely saw her because he was busy with his harem. And so he doesn't love his wife or cherish his wife like us men, we are called and we desire to do. He doesn't, he's not trying to protect his wife, but his wife is an extension of his kingship and someone who would plot against her is undermining him. And so it's back to his pride and, and now he's got to do something. In verse six, it says, Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And Haman grew pale with fright before the queen and the king. So this is like this is a bad day to be Haman, right? You you thought that you were gonna go to dinner with the queen and the king, and you put it on Instagram, hey, dinner with royalty, and all of a sudden the plot shifts and the rug is pulled out from underneath you. And and now this tells you that the king doesn't know his wife very well at all, right? I mean, let's say that 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 your spouse is cooking dinner and you come home from work and and you say, hey, what, what are you making for dinner? And she say, oh, I'm making Thai food, just like my grandma taught me. And you say, your grandma taught you how to make Thai? Why? It's like, well, I'm, I'm from Thailand. Like, you're Asian? When would you become Asian? It's like, how do you not know this? The king had no idea. How do you not know that your spouse worships another god? And so she's not been forthright with the king, and the king hasn't paid attention I mean, this is not the most attentive husband in the world. They've not had a lot of deep conversations. 
In fact, probably most of their conversations revolve around one thing. And so for Esther, this takes an incredible amount of courage. Like she could have stayed silent. She's got nothing to gain from identifying herself with God's people. I mean, there's no reward, there's no benefit to adding your name to the list of people that are about to be murdered. She could have walked away from the entire crisis. But at this moment, she decides to identify herself with the people of God. And what I want you to see is three different things from this noble, brave, godly action from Esther. The first one is this. If you're taking notes, write this in. Is that God chooses to work through people. That may seem a simple point, but God chooses to work through people. Now, there's essentially two theological camps, and you'll see both of these in Scripture. One really emphasizes the sovereignty of God, that God's in control, that God's in the details, that God will show up, God will work everything out according to his plan. God is, God is absolutely in control. He's got it handled. That's one camp, but the other camp will say, hey, no, you need to speak. And you need to act, and you need to serve, and try, and help, and to care, and you need to do your part. And the truth is, is that both theological sides are like two pedals on the same bike. You need both of them. That you need to do your part, and God is certainly going to do his part. You need to give, and God is going to make up the difference. You need to show up, and God is certainly going to be there. And so what we see is that God is at work in the story of Esther, and part of his plan of working in this situation is to work through Esther. And what we need to understand is that God's plan, what he wants to do, he's going to do through you. Like God's plan for your neighborhood is to work through you. And God's plan in raising godly kids in your family is to work through you. And God's plan in racial equality is to work in and through you. And God's plan for giving every child in our county and in our country a home is to work through you. God's plan in restoring and rebuilding is to work through you. And God chooses to work through people, and that includes you and me. Here's the second thing if you're taking notes, is that, is that God empowers you to serve those that are powerless. That God gives you resources and abilities to serve those who are powerless. So in this situation, God's people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they're powerless. Xerxes the king is the one with all of the power. There's no democracy. And so the people have no power. But Esther... Esther has influence, that she's the one person in the community of God's people that has access to the king. And the queen doesn't use her access to the king to indulge herself like Haman does in trying to get all the glory for herself, but she uses it in such a way to speak up for her people that have no voice and to give power to the people that are powerless. Some of you, some of you are very powerful. Some of you are teachers and parents and influencers. Some of you are business leaders. Some of you have great influence. I'd say all of us, by nature of where we live, have some modicum of power and influence. And it's important for us to understand that God puts us, including those of us with spiritual authority, in positions of power so that we can give a voice to the voiceless, so that we can represent those that have no representation, that we would use what we have to benefit other people. This is why we care about foster care. It's why we care about adoption. It's why we care about equality. And it's why we work in places of spiritual and physical poverty. Why? Because we have what we have not to indulge ourselves, but to serve other people. And so God is choosing to work through Esther in this moment on behalf of his people. And so he's equipped Esther 
with the influence that she needs to shift the story. And so this leads me to the last point, number three, if you're taking notes, is that the level of your impact, and all of us want to have impact, but the level of our impact rises and falls on the level of your availability. That the level of your impact rises and falls on the basis of the level of your availability. See, you can have power. You can have the ability to impact other people. You can have influence. You can have the capacity to impact other people. But if you're not available, then you're going to miss the moment to be used by God in a powerful way. And so I, we're reading through the story of Esther, and, and this is the most important moment of Esther's life. And I think it's easy for us to miss the moment if we're consumed with our own interests or absorbed with our own ambitions and desires. We can miss all that God wants to do in and through us if we are not available. See, the truth is, is that you know, God doesn't need you to be powerful. He'll make up the power. He doesn't need you to have great influence. He can make a way. He doesn't need you to be the most intelligent. He'll, he'll provide you the wisdom. He doesn't need you to have a perfect track record. But God does need you to be available. God needs you to be available. And I would say this if you're taking notes, and maybe you've heard this before. But your greatest ability is your availability. Your greatest ability is not your intelligence or your bank account or your gifts or your resources. Your greatest ability is in your availability. Just like the two little boys and their fish and their couple loaves and pieces of bread. And Jesus used those couple of things to feed the thousands of people. The same is true for us, that God doesn't need you to have all of the resources to accomplish the job. He just wants you to be available. Or we would say, God, use me. God, I'm available to do whatever you're calling me to do. And so what we see in this great hero, Esther, She's not looking at the chance that she might die. She's looking at the fate of other people and the urgent opportunity that's before her. And so she recognizes her opportunity, that she's been given her influence for a reason, and she chooses to be available. And so Esther steps up in this moment. She tells the king about her people, and she tells the king about Haman's plot, and she risks her life in this moment. And, and so the king hears about this, and he's furious. And he decides that everything that Haman had plotted against Mordecai should happen to him. And so Haman is impaled on the 75-foot pole in front of his house. house. And, and then the king issues a decree that all of the Jewish people are, are, are able to defend themselves and to protect themselves. Why? Because Esther stepped up and didn't miss her moment. Because Esther stepped up and she chose to be available in this moment the Jewish people were saved. Jesus' ancestors were saved and delivered. So what do we see in this story? We see that just like Esther, God wants to work through you. That you're given abilities and you're given resources and capacity and positions so that you can serve and, 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 and be available and care and love other people. Not so that you can build your own kingdom or serve yourself. That God wants to work through you. And what he's given you, he's given you to make an influence on behalf of other people. And then the third thing is that no matter what you bring to the table, whether it's little or whether it's much, what God is really looking for is your availability. So let me ask you, are you available? Are you ready to be used by God? Are you willing to say like Isaiah, here I am, send me God? And whatever God is calling you to do, 
He'll make all the difference. All he's looking for is your availability. God, I pray right now that wherever we're at, each of us in different spaces, I ask that you'd help us and cultivate us in, in each one of us a heart to be available to you. That we begin to see life's opportunities in connection with the resources and the abilities that you've given us to make a difference and an impact for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.